for the longest time discussion around diversity has been around gender. Thankfully now it's also including diversity and ethnicity diversity, particularly around leadership as Asia becomes more prominent on the global stage. Naturally, businesses hear more about how do we grow and grow and grow in China or in、mm. Asia. My guest today is Andrew Nip, a Chinese Australian born to Shanghainese parents in Hong Kong. Andrew moved to Australia when he was in year seven and lived in Sydney until 2012, when he moved to Shanghai with his former employer Hayes. Eleven years later, Andrew is still in Shanghai and is now the director of talent for LVMH Fashion Group APAC and the proud father to a five-year-old son. Professionally, Andrew is passionate about helping businesses see the true potential of maximizing talent capabilities through innovative HR practices and building an inclusive culture. Personally, he's a big advocate for supporting the next generation of talent and is involved in a number of volunteering commitments across both education and consulting. We talk about Andrew's Chinese Australian identity, building empathy. Connecting with people through words, and the rise of Asian leaders, and how multinationals should reframe their definition of leadership as it relates to the Asian market. Welcome to Cloud Asia, where we ask our guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Andrew Nip. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Cloud Asia. Hey, Lucy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, before we kick off into your nominations, tell us how the Shanghai opportunity came about with Hayes. Sure. Long story short, I started with them in the Sydney office, and through a series of incidents, I was noticed by the HR director and the managing director for APAC, and they saw, I think, some potential in me, but also. They saw that I could speak multiple languages, and at that time, Hayes only was just starting their business in Asia and particularly in China. So they thought this young kid would be interested to go, and they offered me a role to really start the learning and development training function for China because our model was always to hire a lot of non-experienced consultants and train、mm-hmm. them up to become Hayes recruiters. So yeah, course said yes. Why not? Thinking that this will be two years, I'll be back in Sydney with my friends. Was as most stories go, I stayed in Shanghai for the remainder of my life. Yes, as we speak, you are sitting in Shanghai now, right? How did it、Another、feel when、day. when Hayes reached out to you and said? There's an opportunity in Shanghai. We see you being a good fit, and I ask this question in the context of: Did you feel like they were typecasting you? Here's a guy who speaks Chinese and English. He'll get it. He's the natural fit, rather than thinking of the more broader opportunities that you might have in Sydney with the company. I mean, that certainly came across my mind that I'm. Clearly, the obvious option, but I think I chose even at that age, only a couple of years into my career. I think I chose to think differently. I chose to think of it as more of this is an opportunity, and maybe they 
saw something else in me aside from my skin color and my language capability. In fact, I told them quite clearly that I don't really speak Mandarin very well, which I really didn't. So I think I was more focused on what will my life be like living in Asia? Yes. I had only studied primary school in Hong Kong. So the idea of China or broader Asia was very foreign to me. It was more the adventure that kind of interested me. And, you know, I consulted a lot of people and they all went, oh, well, yeah, give it a go. Why not? You know, it wasn't yes. so much China. It was better. It was more that it was something different. You yes. should always try something different. That feels yeah. very similar to my own decision to move to Shanghai in 2014 as well. For me, I had spent a couple of visits to Shanghai. My grandparents from my mum's side mm. lives in Shanghai, but I had very little interest in living and working in mm. mainland China at the time. And I do remember mm. a professor, I think, saying to me, you know, oh, I remember my wife and I moving to London when we were in our 20s mm. for a year. Mm. Just take that adventure mm. and see what mm. you think. You can always come back if you don't like it. Yeah. There's always Melbourne. That's right. Yeah. Why don't we kick off into your first nomination for us, which is food. Tell us what you have picked for us today. Sure. This is really quite genuine, but there is almost a story, I think, behind it. So my favorite food is chicken soup. I think for many reasons, but mainly because I am very much Shanghainese and my parents are Shanghainese and chicken soup is a stable in Shanghainese cuisine. But chicken soup is really interesting because it's made very differently according to where you're from. Even within China, if you're from the South, for example, from Guangzhou, you don't put salted ham into your chicken soup. Whereas if you're okay. from Shanghai, you would always put huotui, which is you know fermented salted ham, yes. into, into your chicken soup. And then if you're in Hong Kong, you also cook it completely differently because it's more about the timing. Whereas Shanghainese, they pride themselves on how clear the soup is and Cantonese pride themselves on how thick and how murky the soup is because that's yes. the collagen, that's all the goodness, yeah? Yes. And then obviously in the West, we also have chicken soup with celery and carrots and onions. And in Vietnam, there's, they've got their own version of chicken soup. Mm. So I pick chicken soup because for me, it's almost a bit of a description of my identity. I think it's really a combination of different cultures and there isn't really one or the other that stands out. I am mm -hmm. both Australian and Chinese. I am Shanghainese, but also very much Cantonese from Hong Kong. Chicken soup, exactly that. There is no one consensus on, well, which country's chicken soup is the best. They're all good for you. Everyone can agree on that, but one makes it slightly differently. And at the start, I said in the introduction, you were born in Hong Kong and spent mm. most of your primary school years there and only moving to Australia in year seven, so around 10, 11 years of age. Yeah. How do you see your identity? Has it changed over the years? I think as I've gotten older, I don't think my identity has changed, but I suppose my insights and understanding of the word identity has evolved. So without going all philosophical, I think for me, it used to be very clear I am more this or more that. I think now I appreciate the nuances and the complexity behind the word identity. I think one thing that has, however, remained quite consistent across my life is 
the fact that race is only a part of who I am, of Andrew. I think often it is my, perhaps my personality or my humor that stands out, whether I am speaking English or speaking Chinese or Cantonese. People don't always get my jokes, but that often always overshadows where I come from, what skin color do I have? And it's taken me a long time to appreciate that because when you're younger, obviously it's natural to want to define things and to put things in a box um, and to fit in, whether that was in Australia when I was studying or whether it was living in Shanghai, I always wanted a clear identity. But as I've gotten older, I've learned to really embrace that I am everything, not one or the other. Most importantly, I'm just me. I'm this guy who really likes to joke, a little bit cheeky and doesn't take himself too seriously. And I think that has been the journey, uh, really, of of defining my identity. Great. (laughs) Well, let's get to know Andrew a little bit more with your next nomination, which is music. You Mm. told me that you love listening to specifically film scores and soundtracks. Mm. Tell us why that is. Well, I think it started when I was in high school, study music. You have some background music as you're studying. So for me, I've always enjoyed listening to soundtracks, partly because I think they really conjure up a lot of memories of the film and the emotions I get from watching the film. Mm. But also partly, I, I also feel that it tells a story. There's a lot of these little notes in the soundtrack that for me is really interesting. It's almost like experiencing something or being able to witness something happening without watching or seeing anything just by pure listening. Absolutely. What's your favorite soundtrack? Do you have one? Yeah, I really like Finding Nemo, Paul Newman, uh, you know, so I really like that soundtrack because for me, I always remember the first time I see something and that feeling I have, and that doesn't disappear. It doesn't get diluted either. So every time I listen to Finding Nemo's soundtrack, I'm talking about the score, yes. it just brings back the same feelings when I first watched it. The story's simple but profound. It's a mix of joy and sadness and discovering, you know, the the real meaning of life. And for me, all of that, I just love that. Well, let's have a listen. Your next nomination for today is TV show, and Mm. you have picked The West Wing. Tell us about why you chose it. Lots of people like it, but also equally, lots of people don't know about it. It's written by Aaron Sorkin. I think it has maybe five or six seasons back in the Mm. 90s, late 90s and early 2000s. So my best friend at school actually introduced me to the show. At that time, I had no idea about American politics, but I think what really resonated with me was just the writing. Aaron Sorkin, who wrote the entire show, is known for his particular style of writing and his way of speaking. And in many ways, I think both my life, my career has centered around communication. Not only is a part of my job, it's also something that 
I think really sets me apart, the ability to communicate and touch people with words. You know, that's something I've always been, even at a young age, has always sort of been something that I know I am good at. And it's something that I know I can maybe hopefully build a career on. And HR is exactly that. You know, a lot of it is about communicating and being able to connect with people through words. And so the West Wing inspired me a lot. And they showed me that I don't necessarily need to be a politician to be able, you know, to touch people or to connect with people. And the writing of the show was just so inspiring for me. I am not going to commit to watching it because I know (laughs) that there are many seasons You might be pleased to know that it was very popular in Canberra amongst the public servants. Uh, That's how I heard about it. And many of my friends, if not all, had seen it. And I'm sure they're mortified that I still haven't. And (laughs) for us being public servants, it really highlighted some of those key things in government about the importance of the public service complexities yeah. in policy making communication leadership yeah i think what you've shared and it's really important is really the power of words and communicating as it relates to yeah. not just politics but really across a lot of different fields last but not least we have your person of clout who have you nominated today? So I thought really hard about this one because people who know me will always say that Andrew's very in touch with his emotions and I'm very sentimental and I'm proud of that. And I thank people around me all the time for either being there for me or just being a friend or being inspiring. I have a lot of people that I would put down as people who've inspired me or people who have made a difference and made an impact to me. But I think my top pick will have to go to my wife. So I met my wife around 10 years ago now when I Mm. really, six, nine months after I landed in Shanghai um, through a mutual friend and her story growing up quite similar to mine. You know, she was originally from Shanghai. She was born in Shanghai, but she, along with her family, immigrated to the US when she was quite young. So very Mm. similar to my story. And she also came back, you know, after she graduated, worked a few years in, in the States, came back to Shanghai. So that's how we met. And for me, you know, when we talk about identity or Asian capabilities or anything surrounding culture, I think she's been the person who's had the most impact on the way that I think and the way I see all of these very important topics. Because I think one thing that my wife has really enlightened me on is the importance of empathy and the importance of not assuming things. We still to this day have a lot of conversations around our experiences as Asian Americans or Asian Australians or Chinese Mm. Australians or third kid. And her views and her experiences are so different to mine. You know, I think in the States, perhaps raises a lot more obvious uh, and a lot more talked about maybe. Whereas in Australia, at least my experience growing up there, it wasn't something that I was constantly reminded of, fortunately for me. Sure, you know, I knew that I was maybe different or I speak different languages, but I didn't grow up having this sort of cloud 
over my head around, oh, I am Chinese, I'm different, or I just don't feel very good about myself. I actually mm. never really had that. And her experiences were quite different. You know, she was very aware and very conscious of the fact that she's Asian American and um, her values and the way she sees things are different. And so we talk a lot about that. And, you know, mm. she's taught me a lot about the importance of empathy and not thinking just because we have the same experiences that our experiences are the same. I have used that. And I think that's impacted a lot on the work that I do and, mm. you know, just be able to really give space to listen and not jump to judgment or conclusions and appreciate that, you know, people are complex, you know, you could be in many things and yet not one thing really, as I said earlier, defines mm. you. So that's had a profound impact on, on my view towards culture, I think. For sure. And last week in Australia, a leading think tank called the Lowy Institute released a report for the third year in a row now on being Chinese in Australia, where they interviewed and surveyed about 1,200 self-identifying Chinese Australians. And you know, I use Chinese Australians relatively loosely in that definition. It's really an encompassing word mm. for Singaporean, Malaysian, Indonesian, the whole spectrum. Mm. And one of the things that really came out from all the discussions is the diversity and differences in views of the Chinese Australian mm. community as it compared with the Australian mainstream community and also the differences within that community as well. And from mm. what you mentioned of your wife, being from a very similar upbringing, but simply mm. living and growing up in the States has really given her a much different kind of view of the world and how she approaches identity and belonging, even though in many mm. ways you are the same from the mm. age that you left Asia. Yeah. I'm yeah. curious to know how you talk to your son about how his yeah. identity fits because he was born in Shanghai. I imagine. Yeah, he was born in Shanghai. He in Shanghai. has a another layer of complexity. That's right. He's five now. So he knows, I guess, to a certain extent that we don't mm -hmm. hold Chinese passports. He knows that I grew up in Australia, you know, where mm. there's a lot of bushes and beaches and, and he knows mummies from the US where there's Disneyland and Universal Studios. For us, we talk to him about it, but we don't define things for him. I think that's one mm. thing that my wife and I agree on is we don't necessarily want to present a very boxed and clear view of the world to him. Of course, there are basic things around right and wrong and morals and values that we try to talk to him about. But when it comes to things like identity, we want him to have his own identity. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about being a third culture kid is mm. you define your own identity. It doesn't have to be one or the other. So we try to do that with, with Noah, our son, is not to say to him, you are Chinese or you are you know, American, Australian, but more that you will figure it out. And yes. probably one day when you're 40, 50, you might have an answer. Yes. Yes. I think that's a great parenting approach. Before we close off, I do want to talk a little bit about employability 
and talent as it relates to Asia capability, given that is your wealth of experience and a big part that you play now recruiting in APAC and managing talent for a multinational. How do you see Asia capability as it fits in talent in recruitment? I think it's a really interesting question and topic for many hours of discussion. So I, you know, I have to preface by saying my experiences have predominantly been with multinational companies. And so mm-hmm. that is a, only a subset of kind of, you know, the yes. business world, if you like, mm-hmm. particularly here in China. But, you know, we were talking about this earlier and I think it's really important to, again, not label, I feel, Asian capabilities or Gen Z capabilities, or, you know, I feel like often these labels genuinely do more harm than good Mm -hmm. because everyone defines it differently. And then you're almost boxed into, you know, if you're an Asian leader, then that typically means you have these strengths and these areas for development. But my experience is meeting a lot of people, interviewing them, hiring them, training them, have taught me one thing that is people are really quite complicating and you can't really ever judge by where they're from or where they studied or what they look like. You know, mm-hmm. we are very nuanced, but generally speaking, I think there's definitely more talk now around, you know, the rise of Asian leaders. I think for the longest time, discussion around diversity has been around gender. Thankfully, now it's also including diversity and ethnicity diversity, particularly around leadership as Asia becomes more prominent on the global stage. Naturally, businesses care more about how do we grow and grow and grow in in China or in Mm. Asia. And again, the the biggest barrier to growth is uh, local leadership or the lack thereof. And so there's a lot of companies now looking into that. And the, the conversation has largely been around, well, how do we get these Asian leaders ready? You know, how do we get local mm. leaders ready for that global job or for that big senior title? But I often challenge when I speak with, you know, whether it's CEOs or HR directors to think the other way around. You know, we need to also challenge headquarters and mm-hmm. corporations as a whole to think differently about how they define performance, how they define excellence, and how they define leadership. Because the definition of leadership, by and large, is not very inclusive. You know, we think of leaders now still in multinational companies as people who are confident, outspoken, strategic. They act a certain way. They need to look a certain way, right? And, you know, not so much race, but just behaviors, right? What we call leadership competencies or executive presence. But in China, executive presence is defined very differently. You know, executive presence typically is someone who has a lot of knowledge, very, very seasoned, but chooses not to shine or not to have the spotlight. That is often the sort of the, what we call the humility or the humbleness of Asian leaders. But that's what people aspire to. And that's what people are inspired by. Not so much the outspoken orator who's very good at presenting and wowing people. If only MNCs recognize some of those nuances and start to go, Mm -hmm. well, perhaps we need to consider different types of leadership and different styles of leadership that's suited for the market they operate in, maybe we can really make a dent or start to make some progress in this whole journey towards diversity and Asian, building Asian capability. 
Yeah. Well, I think that's an excellent place to end. At Clout Asia, we tell the stories of Australians and their journey in leveraging their Asian capability in building clout and making a unique impact in their community. And for you, Andrew, not only are you building clout, but you are really challenging others in positions of influence, institutions, multinationals to really reframe the way that they're thinking about Asia capability and how to really add that much needed cognitive diversity in the workplace. And I think that will be very powerful. And I look forward to continuing to be along for that journey and being a part of it. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Clout Asia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.